0: You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Just last week, I was in Birmingham. That's Birmingham, Michigan, for my Southern listeners, at the Baldwin Library, looking up news stories about a man who was murdered back in 1977. While I was in town, feeding change into a parking meter across from Shane Park, I was reminded of another woman, not too different from myself, one who also took her child to school and drove to Birmingham with things to do. She parked her car in town that morning. She made it to her appointment, but... Then she was interrupted. Her plans were changed for her. There are some people... And some couples that you look at and think, wow, they really have it all. They're healthy. They've got beautiful children. They're good looking. They're easy to talk to. They have a nice house, a good job. They drive a nice car. And you look at them and think, their life must be so good. And sometimes it really is. Deborah Iverson was one of those people. The 38-year-old was a mother of two darling boys. She was a physician at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak. Not just any doctor, a surgeon, head of the Beaumont Eye Institute. She and her husband, Robert, lived in a beautiful home. 52-year-old Robert was also a doctor. He was head of the critical care unit at Detroit's Hutzel Hospital. The morning of May 16th, 1996 started like any other. The babysitter arrived at seven and Robert headed out. About an hour later, Deborah left the house with their oldest son, taking him to school. The sitter would stay with their younger son at the house that morning. Deborah had an appointment, checking in with her psychiatrist before heading to the Royal Oak Hospital off Woodward Avenue where she worked. If you aren't familiar with Birmingham, it's one of the nicest addresses in Oakland County. Gracious homes, parks with waterfalls and tall trees, a downtown shopping district featuring upscale boutiques, gourmet restaurants, and pricey condos that tower over the city, offering views north to the hills and south to Detroit's skyline. Deborah, and I'll be referring to her by her first name as she and her husband are both Dr. Iverson, Deborah stopped at the Detroit Country Day School, walking her son to his classroom. That task complete, she drove north and east to Birmingham, pulling her green SUV into a parking place headed for her 9 a.m. appointment. She dropped coins in a meter before going in. Her vehicle was a luxury SUV, a new Toyota Land Cruiser with all the bells and whistles. Across town, another couple with a young child are living a very different life. Anitra Coomer and her partner, McConnell Adams, live in a two-bedroom apartment in Klaassen. They have a young son, Shaylin. He's about two years old. The pair share one vehicle, and while they did well in high school, life got in the way, and any plans for college were put on hold when they became parents. Their morning is not going like Deborah's morning. Anitra and McConnell, they met in high school in Rochester Hills, where Anitra was a straight-A student. When Anitra became pregnant not long after graduation, they opted to move in together, choosing a modest apartment in Clawson, a working-class suburb in South Oakland County. As I said, they live just a couple miles from Birmingham, but it's a different demographic. On the morning of May 16th, Anitra dressed their young son and readied him for daycare. Anitra and McConnell are out of money, and they are out of ideas. They're behind on their rent, they owe money to their daycare provider, and they are desperate for a way out of their situation. I'd like to stop here and suggest that one or both of them consider looking for work or taking on a second job, but that's not going to happen. Instead of doing that, they're crafting a plan. McConnell has a BB gun that looks just like a handgun, And the two decide that there is an easy fix to their troubles. They're going to rob someone. They're thinking that with a quick infusion of cash, they can get things squared away. They only need like a thousand, twelve hundred dollars maybe, and that would be enough to get caught up on rent and keep their son in daycare. It's the morning of May 16th when the couple puts their plan in motion. McConnell intends to brandish the weapon, use it to frighten the victim. He thought the BB gun was realistic enough to threaten someone into handing over their purse. They drive out of Clawson, likely traveling west on 14 Mile Road, then north on Woodward into the heart of downtown Birmingham. They drive through town, looking for a target, and that's when they spot the Land Cruiser the luxury SUV that Deborah Iverson parked there just 20 or 30 minutes earlier. I wonder if they consulted the meter and saw that time was running low. Surely the owner of this vehicle has access to the money they need. Anitra pulls into a parking space next to the Toyota. McConnell hops out, peering into the windows of the SUV. He spots a pair of car seats in the back, revealing that this is a woman's car. He told Anitra they'd found their mark and the pair waited. When Deborah appeared, the couple watched. Is this her? She looked prosperous. She's dressed nicely. Her hair is done. She's wearing expensive jewelry. McConnell is ready, and Deborah, who's focused on her car and mentally thinking about her workday, or maybe her two young boys, she approaches the Toyota. And McConnell steps behind her, pressing the revolver into the small of her back and hustling her into the back seat of the vehicle. Anitra climbs behind the wheel of the SUV and they drive off. It's 9.50 a.m. We don't know for certain what happens next. Anitra and McConnell aren't talking and Deborah, well, she doesn't get to share her version of events. At ten o eight a.m., Deborah cashes a check at a Michigan National Bank. In Southfield, the check is made out to cash, and it's for one thousand dollars. We're at a critical time in our story. Anitra and McConnell have the money they need, but they also have this woman, this tearful, frightened woman. I'm not making assumptions. Deborah is terrified, tearful, begging. From her wallet, she produced pictures of her young sons. She's showing them to Anitra and McConnell. Deborah Iverson will do anything, anything that they ask, but please, please don't hurt her. She has these little boys, you see. Will you look at them? Look at the two boys, sons that she loves. Deborah wants, she wants more than anything, more than anything at all to get back to these children. Despite having enough cash to pay their back rent and solve their financial problems for the time being, it's not enough. The young couple in the land cruiser, one of them driving, the other holding a gun on Deborah, they've started to argue. McConnell wants another check. Anitra wants to get this woman out of the car and get herself out of this situation. At 11 a.m., they arrive at another branch of the Michigan National Bank this one near M-59 and Crooks Road in Rochester Hills, where they cash a second check. This one is for $300. Anitra guides the land cruiser aimlessly through town. They have their cash, their money woes are over, but what now? The kids, and really, Anitra and McConnell are about 20 years old. They're still kids, and they hadn't thought their plan through. Not really. How did snatching a purse turn into carjacking? How did it turn into kidnapping? They have the money, but what now? Can they just let her go? The pair are talking, bickering, snapping back and forth. And I'm certain that Deborah weighed in from the back seat. Yes, let me go. I won't tell anyone. Please. I have children. I'm a doctor. I help people. Please. Deborah is clutching the photo of her boys but Ricky and Colin, they will not see their mother again. Maybe they didn't set out to kill her, that nice woman, Deborah Iverson, the mother and wife and doctor. Maybe they would have let her go, but they slipped, these kids. McConnell said Anitra's name, her unusual distinctive name. How many twenty-somethings with long curly reddish-blonde hair and pale complexions are named Anitra? That afternoon, Ricky isn't picked up from school by his mother as planned. When the school calls the Iverson home, the babysitter hurries to retrieve him from school after calling Deborah's phone and getting no answer. Robert also received a call from the school looking for Deborah. He has not heard from her, and another call is placed to her cell phone. This, too, goes unanswered. Robert calls the ophthalmology clinic at Beaumont, and they tell him Deborah never made it to work. Robert Iverson's next call is to the Bloomfield Hills Police. 38-year-old Deborah Iverson is missing. On the evening of May 16th, a man who lived near the Stony Creek Metro Park noticed a new Toyota SUV parked on the side of the road. If Stony Creek Metro Park sounds familiar, we've been here before. The Tara Grant case, episode 16. Her husband, Stephen Grant scattered parts of Tara's body throughout the Stony Creek Metro Park. The next day, the same man sees the green SUV is still there, so he parks and gets out to have a look, peering in the windows much like McConnell Adams did the day before. This man also notices the car seats, and he sees a body, face down on the floor. He calls the authorities to report his discovery. Let's talk about Deborah Iverson, Born in 1957, the third of four daughters to parents Richard and Barbara Budd. Richard was a psychiatrist and Barbara a nurse. They raised their family in Livonia. When Debbie graduated from Stevenson High School in 1975, she headed to the Indiana School of Music. While there, she pursued her passion. Deborah was a talented singer with a mezzo-soprano voice. While she loved the arts and she loved to perform... The constant practice took some of the joy from her music. While she could have pursued a career as an opera singer, she changed gears, heading to medical school. It's there that she met Robert Iverson, a divorced doctor 13 years her senior. The two shared a love of music, and he was smitten with the five foot one Deborah Budd. Nine months after they met, he proposed. Debra finished medical school in 1983, and the newlyweds moved to the Detroit area. Debra was always close with her parents and sisters, and her career did not get in the way of that. When Debra became pregnant with their first child, the couple sold their home in the Palmer Woods neighborhood of Detroit and relocated to Bloomfield Hills, a wealthy bedroom community just north of Birmingham. Her career was doing well. She'd opted for a specialty in eye surgery, performing complicated retinal surgeries, which is painstaking, delicate work. By 1996, they had two young boys, Richard and Colin. Deborah chose her green Toyota Land Cruiser with their children in mind because it was a well-rated, safe vehicle. Her husband and friends got a chuckle out of watching the petite young eye surgeon hoist herself into the tall SUV. The spring of 1996 was a good time in Deborah's life. She was well-respected in her field, one of less than a dozen surgeons in Michigan doing the work that she did. She had two beautiful, healthy boys at home, and a good marriage to her physician husband, Bob. Their wedding anniversary was quickly approaching in late May. I mentioned earlier that Deborah was seeing a psychiatrist. Well, she'd been raised by a psychiatrist. She knew the benefits of consulting with a professional to assist in working through roadblocks in your professional or personal life. There was no stigma to the work she was doing with him. Deborah was trying to be more assertive in her professional life, more comfortable in an authoritative role, and the psychiatrist was helping her develop and hone those skills. Her appointment was at 9 a.m., she was seen leaving the building at 9.45, and at 10.05, a check for $1,000 is cashed at the Michigan National Bank on Ten Mile Road in Southfield. At 11 a.m., another check is cashed, this one for $300, at the Michigan National Bank in Rochester Hills. Both Anitra Coomer and McConnell Adams attended high school in Rochester Hills. This is an area they were familiar with. At twelve thirty, the staff at Detroit Country Day School are puzzled. Deborah did not return to pick up her son from school At one fifteen, they place a call to Robert Iverson asking if someone will be picking up Ricky. Robert calls Deborah's cell phone, which, in nineteen ninety seven the newspapers referred to it as a "car phone, and he gets no answer. He calls the house and reaches the sitter. She hasn't seen Deborah all morning, not since Deborah took their older son to school. Robert places another call, this time to the Vision Center at Beaumont. Have they seen Deborah? And he's told that she hasn't come in yet. At 20 minutes after 3 on May 16, 1996, Robert Iverson calls the Bloomfield Hills Police to report that his wife is missing. When Dr. Deborah Iverson went missing, everything is called into question. Her career, her marriage, her parenting— Every minute of Deborah's life is scrutinized. Her husband, Robert, comes under fire. He was older. Maybe his young, pretty, brilliant wife was leaving him. Or maybe he intended to leave her. The press descended. His home, his work, his boys. The three Iverson men left in the Bloomfield Hills house were at loose ends. Two young boys who wanted their mother, and the baffled husband and father who hoped that Debbie had run off, That she had taken a lover, taken a vacation, because the alternative was more than he could bear. The morning of Friday, May 17th, police in Shelby Township swarm the abandoned Toyota with its terrible cargo. The license plate on the car shows it belongs to Deborah Iverson of Bloomfield Hills. When they remove her body from the vehicle, they see strange stains on her coat and on the seats of the car. The smell of bleach fills the air. The red marks on her neck tell them she was strangled. The picture she'd shown to her kidnappers, the image of two happy little boys, is clutched in Deborah's hand. Her car is wiped clean. The seats, steering wheel, and dash are stained with bleach. There is no fingerprint evidence to be found. I don't think there was anything found in that car that would link it to the young couple from Clawson who kidnapped Deborah the day before. So all eyes turned to Robert Iverson, the good doctor who was at work in Detroit all day on the 16th, nothing out of place on his schedule. It was he who reported her missing after learning she never made it to work. It was Robert Iverson who put their sons, four-year-old Ricky and two-year-old Colin, to bed that night, telling them that Mommy would be home soon. And I'm certain that as he did that, he hoped he was telling them the truth. On Saturday, May 18th, Robert went to the press asking for help in finding who took his wife, the mother of his young sons. He offered a $25,000 reward for information, a cash reward that kept getting larger and larger as the summer went on. I remember when this case was in the news. It was everywhere. If a woman, a doctor no less, wasn't safe in Birmingham, then who was? Everyone was talking about it. Everyone had an opinion. This couldn't be a random crime. It had to be a setup, a hit. Was Robert having an affair? He was older than his pretty wife. Oh, maybe she was having an affair. The speculation was at best distasteful. How do you grieve your wife and console your children when everyone thinks you're guilty? That you killed your wife, the mother of your children. Oh, You have a female sitter that comes to the house each day? The sitter wasn't safe from scrutiny either. During the summer of 96, no one knew who killed Deborah Iverson. There was a lot of speculation that her husband was involved, but I just remember feeling really sorry for him and for their children. Robert Iverson had an airtight alibi. He was at work at Hudson Hospital in downtown Detroit all day long. Of course, Robert Iverson had money, and money can buy things, like violence. Eventually, Robert offered a $500,000 reward for information about the murder of his wife, but even that was met with skepticism. When Deborah was found deceased, Robert told his sons a partial truth about their mother's death, a car accident a terrible car accident. That's what took mommy away from them. And this, this really gets me. This tactic, this little protection of his sweet boys, it fell apart because a student at Detroit Country Day corrected Ricky, telling him there was no car accident, that his mother was murdered. This led to a very long night for Robert and his son. Ricky asked what really happened to his mother, and Robert told him. She had been strangled by a criminal. Later, when a reporter asked Ricky if he missed his mother, Ricky responded, I wanted a baby sister, and she was the only way that would happen. After this made the news, Robert was vilified for putting his children in front of the press, whereas I'm pretty sure... Robert hoped someone would see this little boy and come forward with the name of the person who took away his mother. In October of 1996, Deborah's life insurance refused to release the funds from her $1.1 million policy to Robert. This splashed through the news as well, putting the case front and center once again. Birmingham police were not willing to clear him as a person of interest in her death, so the insurer wouldn't pay. The holidays rolled along. Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas. The Iverson and Bud families waited for answers, for something to break in this case. Someone took Deborah. Someone strangled her and left her in the back of her SUV, a vehicle she'd chosen because it was safe. She'd chosen it to protect her little boys. Deborah's family believed in Robert. They believed in his innocence, and they believed in his love for Deborah. It was the support of the Bud family that helped Robert make it through the days and weeks following his wife's murder. It would take months for there to be a break in the case. Almost seven months, in fact. The reward that started at $25,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the death of Deborah Iverson, that reward kept getting bigger. But the days and weeks turned to months, and summer became fall, and no one talked. Deer season opened, and snow flew, and no one talked. The case would break open because McConnell Adams had a history of domestic violence, and it was causing cracks in his relationship with Anitra Coomer. The last week of December, in that strange time funnel between Christmas and New Year's, McConnell and Anitra are not getting along. Maybe it was the secret of the crime they'd committed, the hideous murder of an innocent woman. Or their high school sweethearts turned parents at too young an age relationship wasn't built to last. Or the financial strain, they had money for cigarettes and alcohol and sometimes for pot, but rent was hard to come by. Their young son was still in diapers, and if you have children, you know how expensive that can be. On December 29, 1996, Coomer was visiting with her friend Anita. Not Anitra. Anitra has a friend named Anita. I know that's confusing. Anitra told Anita about the beatings. You see, getting the cash infusion from their murderous carjacking of Deborah Iverson did not fix their financial problems or their relationship. Back in September, Anitra and McConnell stole a set of keys from a store at Oakland Mall. They found the car that matched the keys and drove away with it. Anitra told her friend of the violence, the assaults, and Anita encouraged her to go to the police and report the domestic situation. When another friend, Mark Dawson, joined them, she confessed to him that it was McConnell and herself who had kidnapped and murdered Iverson in the spring, that she'd been driving when McConnell strangled the doctor. Then, Anitra had stopped at a drugstore to buy bleach and scrub the vehicle clean. Dawson told her she should report the domestic abuse to law enforcement, and he was right. Anitra should report the abuse, but Dawson isn't thinking only of his friend and her safety he's seeing dollar signs. The reward offered by Robert Iverson for information about his wife's murder, it was now valued at half a million dollars, and Dawson intended to get that money. But first, Mark Dawson consulted with an attorney, and then he reported to authorities that Anitra Coomer and her partner, McConnell Adams, were responsible for the death of Deborah Iverson in May 1996. Anita Krawczyk offered to drive Anitra Coomer to the police station to file the report about the domestic abuse, and in the car ride on the way over, she told Krawczyk about the Iverson murder and that McConnell told her that if they were arrested, he would take responsibility for the crime so she would be protected and could raise their young son. The police and Clausen listened to Anitra's tales of abuse at the hand of her partner she did not mention Deborah Iverson. She did not tell them that she participated in strangling the doctor or that it was her who entered Arbor Drugs to buy a bottle of bleach to clean any trace of herself and McConnell from the Toyota. She didn't talk about dropping McConnell off to pick up his truck while she drove the Land Cruiser with Iverson's body in the back out to a remote lot near Stony Creek Metro Park where they cleaned up and abandoned the mother of Ricky and Colin, the wife of Robert, and the daughter of Richard and Barbara. Leaving Deborah in the back of the car, that safe vehicle she chose, thinking of her young sons. On December 29th, Anitra walked into the Clawson Police Department to file a report, and Clawson Police issued a warrant for McConnell's arrest. Anitra told them he was driving a stolen pickup, the same one he'd taken in September from the Oakland Mall. She provided a description of the vehicle. After filing the report, Anitra returned to their apartment. Her partner, McConnell Adams, was arrested within a matter of hours. Dawson, who was friends with Anitra and was rumored to have had a physical relationship with her when she was on the outs with McConnell earlier in the year, he wasted no time. He knew there was a generous cash reward for information about the person who killed Deborah Iverson. When Anitra headed to the police station to report the abuse, Dawson got on the phone. He started by contacting a lawyer, and it was the next day, December 30th, when his lawyer reached out to the sheriff's department with information on the case. That evening, deputies went to Coomer's apartment. At least five of them showed up at her door, three in uniform and two plain clothes. They wanted to speak with her about Dawson's tip. One of the deputies was Oakland County Sheriff's Lieutenant Bill Kusick. He'd been the public face of the investigation. He'd appeared on television multiple times over the last several months talking about the case. Anitra Coomer knew exactly who he was. She was frightened by the officers at her apartment. It was nearly midnight, and just a couple of hours earlier, the 20-year-old had been drinking and smoking marijuana. Her two-year-old son was sleeping in his bedroom, and she asked that they not disturb him. Kusik said he needed to talk with her about Deborah Iverson, and Anitra began to cry. She asked if she could find her cigarettes, and he agreed. She sat down, lit up a cigarette, and began to talk. According to Cusick, Anitra told them she never intended for Iverson to die. At her trial, which started in October of 1997, she stated that it was McConnell who spotted the land cruiser parked in Birmingham. It was McConnell who placed a gun to Deborah's back and forced her into the vehicle. Anitra took the wheel while McConnell dealt with Deborah. At one point, after they'd gotten $1,300 from two banks, it was McConnell who asked for the belt from her coat. She thought he was just going to tie Iverson up. When she stopped at a stop sign, she looked in the rearview mirror. McConnell was no longer kneeling over Deborah Iverson in the back seat. He was seated on the rear seat. Their eyes met, and he told her, Anitra, it's done. It's over. Well, that's one version of events. That's what was presented at trial. Another version says that they were parked... Anitra wanted to stop and buy more cigarettes. She and McConnell were arguing, and McConnell slipped up and called Anitra by her name, her unusual distinctive name. Realizing that they were now caught, Anitra pulled the belt from the loops of her coat and started strangling Deborah with it. She tired from the physical effort involved in killing an innocent woman, and McConnell took over, finishing the task. The third version is that they drove the Land Cruiser to an Arbor drugstore, and McConnell stayed in the vehicle with Deborah while Anitra went inside to buy cigarettes as well as bleach and paper towels. When she returned to the SUV, Iverson was deceased. McConnell had killed her while Anitra wasn't around. Whatever version is the truth, the result is the same. Deborah Iverson is dead. Anitra Coomer and McConnell Adams made off with $1,300, and that money solved some of their problems, at least for a little while. But things between the young couple continued to unravel. There was domestic abuse, more crime, including stolen vehicles, but they tried to keep it together for the sake of their son. It was New Year's Day, 1997, when Robert Iverson received an early morning phone call. It was the Oakland County Sheriff. They informed him that they had solved the case and were on their way to his home. A story in the newspaper said that it occurred to Robert that maybe they were coming for him, to arrest him for the murder of his wife. After months of grief and worry, trying to raise his boys without his wife while facing the sadness and the loss and the looks, the suspicion from his neighbors and co workers and patients, he was relieved. There was an answer. But the randomness of Deborah's death, that she was quite literally in the wrong place at the wrong time, weighed on him. While it was January 1st that he learned why his wife had died and who had killed her, resolution would not be quick. The trial of Anitra Kumar and McConnell Adams did not begin until October of 1997. During the trial, the prosecutor laid out a case that made Anitra and McConnell's involvement in Deborah Iverson's death very clear. On the day after the murder, May 17th, the couple paid their daycare provider the $480 they owed and caught up on back rent of about $600. Their daycare provider testified that when McConnell paid the overdue bill on May 17th, he had suffered a hand injury and was wearing a bandage. Maybe he got that injury while strangling Deborah, who, according to the autopsy, fought him and struggled hard for her life. There was evidence linking Anitra to the murder as well. Her fingerprints were on the two checks that Deborah Iverson made out to cash on May 16, 1996. Anitra and McConnell were tried together with separate juries, and both were found guilty of first-degree felony murder and kidnapping. At their November 1997 sentencing, Robert Iverson asked the judge to hold Adams and Coomer responsible, not just for murdering his wife. He wanted them held responsible for the three children whose lives were upended by their actions. Dr. Iverson asked that Coomer and Adams be required to pay for the education of Deborah's children, as well as the education of their own son, Shaylen, who was three years old when his parents went on trial for murder. Iverson requested that any money the two earn in prison, or from insurance policies, lotteries, or the sale of their story, that this money be earmarked for the education of all three boys. Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Rudy Nichols agreed, and he made the financing order part of their sentences. I believe that this part of the sentence, accepting responsibility not just for killing Deborah, but for the horror inflicted on three innocent children, This was the only bright spot in this nightmarish case. After the trial, Coomer and Adams appealed their sentences, and in 2001, the Michigan Court of Appeals affirmed the sentence of life without parole. Anitra Coomer is 43 years old and currently resides at the Huron Valley Regional Correctional Center in Ypsilanti. McConnell Adams is 42 years old and resides at the Thumb Correctional Facility in Lapeer. In November of 1997, using more than $60,000 in donations from Deborah's friends, family, and colleagues, the Deborah Bud Iverson Ophthalmic Learning Center at William Beaumont Hospital's Eye Institute opened in her honor. In addition to learning materials and technology, the center also features photos of Deborah at her work and is a fine remembrance of a good, talented woman taken too soon. The Already Gone Podcast is a bi-weekly show featuring stories from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, you can email me, host at com. You can find us on Twitter at alreadygonepod. Want to look at some of our sources or to do some additional reading? Visit our website, www.alreadygonepodcast.com. I'm Dina Instad, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.